Our first reading this morning comes from Revelation, the 22nd chapter. See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. It is I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let everyone who hears say, come, and let everyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. The one who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. Here ends the reading. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. And, you could say, he is risen. Hallelujah. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. I know we haven't done that every week, but, and we're kind of, um, on the fuzzy line here, because I had intended for this to be Ascension Sunday, as it indicated there in Acts, uh, that's 40 days after Easter, so that's always uh, on a Thursday, <laughs> not a Sunday, but we have the option to bounce it forward. However, uh, I was given the chance here, I was considering uh, the seventh Sunday of Easter's Revelation reading, and then when I found out that's what they were using at Trinity, I made the switch, so... Uh, it's kind of the seventh Sunday of Easter. And either way, Ascension takes place in the season of Easter. So that's a little bit of background you probably didn't care about. <laughs> so, I've had uh, an earworm, you know, a set of song lyrics stuck in my head for about a week now. You know the way that goes. It, something happens, you hear a tune that's kind of like something you're familiar with, maybe a song you're not so familiar with on the, on the radar, and then it kind of moves in, and then it plays over and over, and you can't stop thinking about it until, well, maybe you get to hear the song, or more likely until some other earworm moves in and replaces it. Um, <laughs> well, I'm kind of ja uh, chuckling to myself, because it just now occurs to me that maybe that doesn't happen to most people. <laughs> I assume it does, but... Um, so this particular verse that has entered my thinking and didn't want to leave comes from a song way back in 2004. I'm given to understand now that I have uh, teenagers that even the 90s is considered oldies. So I guess it's not that far from being oldies already. Uh, but this is, so this is music I listened to when I was in high school and into college. This is a third wave ska band, a Christian band, Five Iron Frenzy. I've quoted them before. Their lyricist is one of my favorites. And his second verse of this song, A New Hope, goes like this. A darker world lies behind this one. Cryptic it hides beneath perception. We all saw it on that day. Stunned we stood stuttering. What did the news say? And those are words that fit well this week, and the more I think about it, unfortunately, it seems like perhaps they fit most weeks anymore. And that's 
kind of the nature of it, right? The news is salacious. It's heavily biased towards negativity, towards tragedy. They know what keeps us clicking and viewing and keeps our cable subscriptions active. Everything's going to heck in a handbasket and we can't help but gawk, like seeing an accident on the side of a highway. What happened now? And who's to blame this time? And it wasn't that long ago, we can remember, it was flooding majorly in one part of the world, while in other parts of the world, fires raged. And here in our country and in Australia, as I recall. And then you could hardly turn around after hearing that news, and a literal plague fell upon the entire world. And then for months now, there's been war and rumors of war. I think I understand that expression from Jesus more so today than I did any time before. So bad news keeps invading our living rooms. It's on our screens. And yet again this week, you might think of how Revelation talked about this. Revelation warned that those sorts of hardships were coming and that they would be followed by the end of all that is. That's a pretty common way for Christians in our context to respond. I mean, never mind that Jesus said we won't figure it out, but there's two ways that lenses, two ways that we might approach the situation that Scripture affords us. But it gives us more than just those two. It's not merely try to figure out the end of the world versus let it go and live into today. Uh, for example, Revelation is where we find this idea, alluded to in those lyrics, that the troubles of this world, at least some of them, especially these large-scale things, are really about supernatural evils battling it out with God. And though these troubles are much to be lamented, the worse they get, the closer we always are to God's intervention. So, perhaps we try these scriptural lenses on for the week where we turn to a teacher-preacher Bible study to figure out where does this week's tragedy fit into God's plan? Well, our reading today is from the last few verses of Revelation, and that's where we'll end this morning. But we've had a series from Revelation, seven weeks in a row now, the entire season of Easter. So... And we haven't really touched on it. So first, let's get a 10,000-foot view of what's happening in Revelation. So John of Patmos, that's the author living in exile, he has this vision in which, despite expectations of a military Messiah coming to conquer the world, to free the Jewish people with an army of angels at his back, that's what several prophecies sound like he even quotes them in Revelation, and yet right after quoting them, repeatedly he turns to see. To, he asks, you know, what is God up to? How is this going to come about? What is God's plan? And repeatedly he turns and sees not a soldier, but a lamb. A lamb who is already slain, drenched in blood. And then this lamb continually conquers through self-sacrifice and not with weapons though he does have a weapon a metaphorical sword but that is his tongue his words are his weapon by which he conquers the world so this happens not once but 
a number of times because this revelation is written as a cycling, spiraling timeline. It happens over and over. It describes the world in which we live, the Lamb's followers live, and how we are to live into it. So it's both visionary and instructional, as Scripture often is. So this story is told first in steps, described as seven seals. This is the scroll opening up. Then seven trumpets announcing what God's up to. Then seven signs. And then eventually, a bit later, seven bowls. And in each one, they vary a little bit, but each one, the steps, well, the seven as a whole, lead into the next. So the cycle looks complete, and then it starts over. And in each one, they describe the hardship of the earth. That's the first five steps. And that comes in various forms. Again, they vary a bit. There's In one, we have the four horsemen, war, conquest, famine, death. And we also have empire depicted as beasts, Babylon, Greece, Seleucid, Roman, and so on. And then the plagues of Egypt are mentioned a few times, which is to say God's judgments and or natural disasters are in there. So each time the story is told, it's at the sixth step thereabouts that the lamb enters the scene and dies for the people. And then at the seventh step, God makes things right, casts out evil, ushers in a kingdom, and his kingdom is conformed to that lamb. We might say cruciform. It fits with the cross or Christocentric. Everything that Jesus was about is at the heart of this kingdom. So through and through, this kingdom is consistent with Jesus' example and instruction to give of ourselves, to love so bad it hurts, to lay down our lives. And it goes, therefore, maybe not without saying, but by implication that we do not do in this kingdom just the opposite. No more making idols of worldly powers, no more prioritizing ourselves over those who are in need, and no more wielding weapons against one another. So there's those four sets of seven, but then the story is told three more times. So wouldn't you guess it seven times in total? Seven's a, an important number, you know, seven days in creation. Uh, it's, it's found all over the Old Testament. It's the, it's the number of a completed cycle or story. It's the cycle of which, you know, Sabbath and Jubilee and on and on it goes. So we've had it four times, and then we get it three more. And on the last three times, there's a different emphasis in each one, on a different emphasis on a different phase in this cycle. And the last one is where we got last week's reading and this week's reading. And in this one, the emphasis, the final emphasis on the seventh time, talking about the seven-step story, is the new age. It's a new Jerusalem coming down from the heavens. It's, the, it's heaven and earth becoming one. It's God dwelling in the cruciform kingdom right here with us forever and ever. Amen. I mean, that's one of those. <laughs> These readings are hard not to respond to, right? To say amen as we're going through them. So, broadly, hard times come. The lamb is slain. And then we might insert a dot, 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 you know, an ellipsis, one of those representations of an indeterminate amount of time, some pause there in the story. And then God's kingdom is ushered in and all things are made right. 
Now, a dot, dot, dot can be an awful long time. In poetic imagery, we might say, John of Patmos might say, it's about a thousand years, but maybe more, maybe a few thousand years. So, when does this take place? Where is that dot, dot, dot? Is it thousands of years or 40 days? Well, if we pluck one verse, this is part of why... If you look at how different churches and preachers approach Revelation, you might, uh, <laughs> it could give you a headache rather easily. Because if we pluck one verse, it sure sounds like John is describing what's already in his past. He's describing the Old Testament prophets up through the Christ event. By that understanding, step six is the crucifixion, step seven is the resurrection. But if you pluck another verse, all of a sudden, it sounds like maybe it's actually happening right now, or at least the dot, dot, dot is right now, the crucifixion and resurrection being step six in the past, and then God setting all things right still being in our future. Pluck yet a third verse, and it's all off in the future. It's all prophetic for stuff that hasn't happened yet, or maybe is starting to happen now, and that's how we get into this idea of trying to figure it out. And if that sounds a little wacky, a little contradictory, it's because this isn't fitting our normal way of thinking about time. It's a mystical, poetic, artistic attempt to give us a glimpse into how time works from God's perspective. At the same time, our lives, if we could find our perspective in the story, we live our lives through one of these smaller cycles. We can take any one of them as a model for how things tend to play out in the world and apply it to various times. We can apply it even in our own lives. It's not a coincidence that every generation thinks this kind of sounds like what's happening right now. So for us then, the dot, dot, dot may well be between Christ's ascension and return. And then, but time for us doesn't work like it does for God. Instead of that long dot, 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 a thousand years is but a moment in his sight, for us it's more like tick-tock, tick-tock. Because time for us is linear, one thing after another, and it's limited. Time runs out. We don't have an eternity to go through cycle after cycle. We die, and at our death, the next thing we perceive is the resurrection. So... Our death is for us the end of time, and it is inevitable. Tick-tock, tick-tock. In each lifetime, over and again, forces greater than ourselves, forces at odds with God, impart evil upon the world. Each lifetime ends in death, and each lifetime culminates at the resurrection, and then we're at step seven when God sorts it out. The same story told over and over in poetic fashion in Revelation and in actual history in our lives. Generation after generation, seals, trumpets, signs, bowls, churches, nations, bodies, all broken, decaying, poured out, dot, 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 Tick-tock, tick-tock. Time is running out. So, Paul asks, Paul, excuse me, John asks, who can stand before such tribulation? 
Who can survive the onslaught of that which opposes God? If even God is struggling against these forces, at least in some sense, then what chance do we have? What lasts? Nothing. All those evil or innocent, powerful or weak, the end is the same for each of us. We pass, at least for a time, at least for that dot, dot, dot. And yet, knowing that, Knowing the nature of creation and time and our human condition, God calls us to see beyond that, this, to see this prophetic vision, to see what will be, what has, is, and will be, and then calls the church to live in light of this that hides behind perception, this reality that isn't obvious to everybody but has been revealed to us. God calls the saints to live as though the Lamb is here leading the charge now, as though the army of the Lamb is already active and we're already enlisted to lay down our lives rather than practice violence. And that we know from other sources, from history, that we know is how destructive or abusive cycles end. When enough of us In this case, enough of us who follow Christ lay down our lives, lay down our weapons, set aside our idols, and give ourselves over to the love of God and neighbor. When enough of us do that, that's when the cycle ends. And until we get there, we just see one tiny little bit at a time of this cosmic battle and the cycle that's lived out in our lifetime. So shifting back to God's perspective, as hard as it is to imagine, that's why it's presented in this artistic way. And perhaps if you have an artistic mind, you can see it easier than I can. But God sees this cycle as it's playing out over and over. But God also sees it all at once. Again, just a moment in God's eyes. So God can participate in history by noticing, by attending to these cycles. And yet God stands outside it. And that's finally gets us to our reading today, the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet, A to Z. So when it's beginning and the end, it's also everything in between. God envelops all of this as God sees it. God, again, then calls us to consider this reality that we can't see but has been revealed to us in the prophets, a reality that is evident. It is evident that God is opposed to those evil forces. And if we could step outside of time, we could see that God has and will defeat those forces. And that's an important note revealed to us by prophets because in this time, there are advantages to self-seeking, you know, the whole cheating, lying, stealing, that has its advantages. It's no coincidence that people do that. And worldly idols, dedication to something other than God, but we know from the prophets that those things will not win. And if we conceive of this as a cosmic battle where God is on one side and those evil forces are on the other, well, then when time runs out, whose side do we want to be on? So, what does that mean for us? Sitting here, living through this cycle, pulled in different directions, caught in the middle of this war. Well, a good place to start 
to correct what I suggested earlier, do not ask where this week's tragedy or any other disaster or accident or diagnosis fits into God's plan. Because they don't. God's plan is to eradicate them. And in God's eyes, God has already won. As it was in the beginning, so it shall be in the end. As before, the tree of life. That reference there to the Garden of Eden, that all who wish to have access to it will, with all God's people, living in a world free of sin and death. God will invite all those who desire to be a part of that to come. Come be a part of it, and we in turn will invite each other as well. But that kingdom isn't here yet in our linear timeline, so we're called to live into it, to get ready for it, to proclaim it to the world, to show the world what it looks like, to live in light of Christ's example and teachings. And called maybe isn't a strong enough word for a text like this. It's a word that we preachers really like because we want you to know that God wants a relationship with you, but not feel like you've been coerced into it, to not feel like you should be scared, but rather to honor the salvation that's been made available to you. And yet, for some of the prophets, the word called just simply isn't severe enough. See, the lectionary, <laughs> the schedule of readings, it had a skip a verse or two. There's reasons for that. Um, well, I'll read one verse and I'll give you the explanation. One of the verses we skipped goes like this. Outside are the dogs. This is outside the city, the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And the other verse we skipped is, is kind of like that, but it's more in reference to whether we change Scripture. So by default, the lectionary has us skip verses when they really ought to be explained if they're going to be read. And I think I know why for this one. It's because no dogs in heaven? <laughs> Some of us wouldn't want to go there. Right? <laughs> but it's not quite like that because... The word dog is found uh, maybe a half a dozen times or so in the New Testament, and it's almost never referring, I think it maybe once refers to actual dogs. Dogs were unclean animals by Jewish understanding, so it gets used as an insult for unclean people, particularly non-Jewish people who live in an unclean way. So then we have sorcerers. Well, we don't talk about that nowadays. Maybe that demands an explanation. Those are people who try to manipulate the elements or manipulate people's minds, deceive them for their own benefit. Uh, fornicators, murderers. That's a little more straightforward. Idolaters. That's people, again, putting their trust in, say, the beast of the state, the empire, rather than in God. And then the stuff about falsehood. I mean, that's pretty... It's pretty straightforward. Those who peddle lies and then revel in them. So those people, Revelation tells us, they're there at the end times when all this war is settled out, and yet they're not inside the gates. They're not next to the tree of life. Well, that's not too hard to sort out why. If we remember that this heaven, this next era, is like this one. It's a new heaven and a new earth. So those whose presence would cause harm to God's people are not going to be present. 
And that maybe sounds unloving, but it's not. Uh, Revelation's one of those texts, apocalyptic literature, they always say that's for, it's really for hope for afflicted, oppressed people. Because when we're doing well and we read in church that God's going to blow it all up, that doesn't sound like terribly good news. But if you're in a really hard way, it sure does. It's with those people in mind that John reminds us some will not be permitted within the walls. And particularly, it's those who would reject God's providence. I mean, think of it this way. Those who don't want to be within the gates, God gives them the freedom to do so, to live outside the walls. If they really would rather side with those evil forces to live in their evil ways, they can be quarantined outside the gates with their evil if they want. The only way to promise God's people that they are free of such affliction, such violence, is to exclude those who perpetrate it and by their lies permit it to carry on afflicting the weak and the innocent. And that is the vision God seeks after and calls us to seek after, one in which our own safety is given up for the weak and the innocent's sake. Dot, dot, dot. And that's how the cycle ends. Tick tock, tick tock, when time runs out. Again, we're living through one of those cycles, and we can see it on the news every week. Sure, it's just a blink of an eye for God, but for us, it's our lifetime. We can see the forces of evil through, and then we can side with those forces of evil through our actions or our inactions, through our lies or through our silence. Or we can heed God's call to set up this army for the Lamb, self-sacrificing and loving, using our words for weapons. Those who desire to live outside God's presence get their wish. Those who are innocent, those who yearn for peace, those who draw near to God, who wish to have access to God, who wash themselves in the blood of the Lamb, you might think of that as an image for baptism. Baptism is literally immersion, immersion into everything Christ is, was, and will be about. God will separate us as we so desire so that when the cycle ends, the innocent, the saints, can be saved. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Time is running out. And we don't have forever to figure out which side of the wall we want to be on. Whose side in this war are we allied with? So that glimpse into the darker world in those lyrics, those were clear back in 2004, not quite oldies yet. But they were in reference to what happened in 1999. That was when 12 students and a teacher were shot and killed at Columbine High School. For context, I was in eighth grade. I remember how much it shook everybody up to hear that. But they could have just as easily been written the year after the song was published because that was the year that nine were killed and shot and killed at Red Lake High School. And then the next year after that, West Nickel Mines, five were shot and killed there. 
and Virginia Tech, 32. Northern Illinois University, where I was a student at the time, five. I had actually just left where that took place moments before. Oikos, seven. Sandy Hook, 27. Santa Barbara, six. Marysville Pill, Chuck, four. Umpqua, nine. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, 17. Santa Fe, 10. Oxford, four. And then this week, Robb Elementary School, 21. From 1999 to 2022, 23 years, stunned we stood stuttering, what did the news say? And 23 years is a lifetime, you know? It's longer than most of those 169 victims lived. And we can't just stay stunned. We have to speak up. Bonhoeffer rightly wrote on the call of the church in response to fascism, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Tick-tock, tick-tock. God will not hold us guiltless if we live, act, or feel indifferent to the suffering and death of innocent children. And we don't have to agree on what should be done. Just that something must be done. And woe to those of us who could have or can help but choose not to out of self-interest or self-preservation. Because as we've seen, that is the antithesis of the Lamb. It's the embodiment of the Antichrist. It's on the other side of the war and outside the wall. And what's waiting for them is far worse than anything they've unleashed or allowed in this world. And time is running out. Amen. We'll sing together him.